0: This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Nathan Heffel. Tax day may be a bit less painful for some Coloradans Monday. They'll get a credit on their state and federal returns because they bought electric cars. Electric car sales soared at one Boulder dealership at the end of last year, thanks to a deal that dropped the cost of a new Nissan Leaf to about a third of its sticker price. It was a group discount promoted by Adams, Denver, and Boulder counties. And the discount? It's available again this year. But should taxpayers be subsidizing this? I'm joined by Will Tour of Southwest Energy Efficiency Project, a program sponsor. He's also a former Boulder mayor. And Evan Fryrish, a Boulder County resident who bought one of these cars. Evan, you bought a Nissan LEAF with a sticker price of roughly $32,000. But at the end of the day, it only cost you a fraction of that. Walk us through the numbers.
1: Okay. So basically, the price was $32,000 for the car. Mm-hmm. The dealer had a discount of 4000 And Nissan had a discount of $5,000. So the price after the discount was $23,000. And um, then basically I knew I would be entitled to a tax credit for it. The federal tax credit was $7,500. The state tax credit was about $5,000. So then the price basically ended up being about $10,500. Um, the, um, then basically, I started factoring in other things. Uh, you know, basically, I knew I was going to save money on gas, um, I knew I was going to save money on charging because basically, the dealership uh, offered two years of free charging. That works. Some of the time, but not all of the time. So I do charge at home as well. And so, sort of after I added everything up, um, uh, there were some taxes and fees and everything else that went with it. I figure the car cost me about $11,000. So would you have bought this car otherwise had these incentives not been there? I don't think so. I mean, part of it is is that basically an electric vehicle we have to acknowledge has its limitations. Um, my car... Uh, gets uh, basically 80 miles approximately on a full charge. Um, really, you don't ever want to get down to zero. So we sort of practice keeping it down to, we maybe get to 80% or something like that. So there is somewhat of a trade-off, but, um, uh, but it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, I remember when Denver had its brown cloud, Um, we felt like for the purpose we needed it for, it could work well enough. My wife uses it to commute every day to school. She's a high school teacher in the eastern part of Boulder County. And, um, so it works, it works well enough for her. So I'm not sure without the tax credits, if I would have done it. So, Will, let's talk about these tax credits for
0: electric cars. They're available to everyone. So what's different here? is this group
2: discount. Who sponsors the discount, and, and why was it an important initiative? So the discount program, in, in this case, was really initiated by Boulder County in partnership with the nonprofit organization Vote Solar. And what they did was just went out to the private sector, did a request for proposals to see what time-limited discounts uh, dealers and vehicle manufacturers would be willing to offer last Last summer, the the program that was offered, Nissan participated, as Evan described. The county has just launched another program in which, in addition, BMW is participating and a number of electric bicycle dealers are participating. Hmm. Now, the, the concept here was really that if we want to get to deep reductions in both air pollution and in greenhouse gases, from transportation. There's no really plausible way to do that that doesn't involve transitioning most cars over time to electricity while we also transition our electricity to very low carbon mix that's primarily renewables. And so this program really actually paired solar and electric vehicles together. You could get discounts on both of them. And so the... Solar the county, for housing, I'm assuming? Solar solar panels for housing? Yes, although the the current program that has just reopened also includes solar for businesses. So how much did this cost the counties involved? It was incredibly cheap. Because the discounts are provided by the dealers, the only cost for the counties was their staff time in organizing and promoting the program. And so Boulder County, which took the lead on that, estimates that they spend a total of about $8,000. And for that $8,000 helped move 248 electric vehicles, so millions of dollars of electric vehicles, and 147 home solar systems. But I find that interesting. You know, 248 electric cars,
0: and Fort Collins ran a similar group discount and sold 52 cars. That compares to more than 200,000 new cars registered in the state last year. How can that number possibly make
2: a meaningful impact on the environment? So... Electric vehicles are just at the very beginning. You know, if you think about it, four years ago, there basically were no electric vehicles that were available. About three years ago, we started seeing Nissan Leafs and Chevy Volts and the Tesla coming available. So the market is just in its infancy. I think we got a taste of of where it's headed, you know, two weeks ago when Tesla did the pre-sale of their new, you know, somewhat affordable long-range electric vehicle and, you know, essentially took orders for 300,000 of them in a week. Right. You know, as battery costs are, are coming down, ranges are getting further, I think we're going to see much larger numbers of electric vehicles out there in the future. Evan, you're going to see a nice
0: tax credit on Monday. But other taxpayers might be thinking, I, I just bought Evan a new car. How do you as a taxpayer feel about subsidizing this kind of purchase?
1: Well, I think that uh, the taxpayer benefits in indirect ways, basically because more and more people are using electric cars. basically, the air will be cleaner basically um, I you know we don't drive as much as other people because of mm-hmm. our range limitations for right now, and so we don't drive as much so I think that it's you have to look more at the indirect benefits than essentially what comes out of um, your pocket directly.
0: So well, is there evidence that this is getting people to buy electric cars who couldn't otherwise afford them, or is it just helping well- to- do people save more
2: money overall? So we did a a survey of everybody who bought an electric vehicle through this program. And what we found was that three-quarters of the people who purchased an electric vehicle had not been planning on getting an EV. So the, the vast majority were folks who would not have otherwise purchased an electric vehicle. I see. And you mentioned, uh, as, we, as we
0: wrap up here, Boulder has launched a second group discount through the end of June. And, and like you said, there's quite the buzz about this Tesla Model 3 that's affordable, uh, per se, uh,
2: car. Can I get one of those if I, if I use this discount? Uh, Tesla is not participating right now. It is Nissan and BMW. And I have a question about the federal tax credit, because it not it limited to the first 200,000 cars sold by each manufacturer? So could, in theory, this run out? So eventually, they, unless it's extended, and the Obama administration has proposed extending the tax credits, but unless it's extended, eventually those tax credits will, will go away, They'll be phased down and then eliminated. You know, the theory is that we need to give the market a kickstart. The Colorado tax credits will also phase out. They're they're in place for the next several years, and they then phase down in 2020 and 2021. So if you want to get the tax credits, act now.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you both for joining us. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Evan Fryrish lives outside of Boulder. Will Tour is Transportation Program Director of Southwest Energy Efficiency Project. You can find information on these group discount programs as well as information about an updated building code requiring new house garages in Denver be ready for electric cars at cprnews.org. Just ahead at nearly 150 years old, is the Denver Press Club still relevant? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The press club in Denver is the oldest in the country. Reporters first gathered in 1867 and incorporated a decade later. That makes the club about as old as the state itself. Presidents, celebrities, and authors have paid visits. Today, the club faces what might be its greatest challenge, staying relevant in the digital age. Alan Kanya is the
3: club's historian. He spoke to CPR's Ryan Warner. Alan, thank you for being with us. That's my pleasure. It's glad to be here. It seems the height of the club's popularity came between about 1900 and 1930. Tell us about the place of the press club at this time. Well, we moved from bouncing around from uh, hotel to hotel, getting thrown out of
4: most of the, uh, the better quality ones. Truly? And, uh, truly. For, for bad behavior? <laughs> we were a rowdy crowd. Mm-hmm. And in 1925, we built our own clubhouse, which is located at 1330 Glenarm Place. And that became the
3: Denver Press Club and continued that way to the present day. And this is a time at which uh, American presidents have even taken note of the Denver Press Club? We had a lot of uh, presidents come through and uh, on both
4: informal purposes as well as campaigning and as presidents. And uh, they became honorary members of the press club, including Harding and Teddy Roosevelt and Bill Taft and and some of the others that have uh, come through the club. Some
3: of the photos of presidents and presidential candidates who came through that hang still today at the headquarters on Glenarm. Those were taken on site, I guess. Right. There was a closet in the uh, press club
4: that uh, uh, served as a uh, photo studio. And presidents uh, that came through the club had to pose in the in the closet.
3: Uh, you know it would be fun to post some of those portraits to our website at cprnews.org. At this time the club plays something of a booster role if you will for the city and there's not this sense of us and them reporters and the and the rest of the population. Was there a coziness then the Denver Press Club was a great place where uh, politicians, business
4: leaders and the general press could uh, come together, have lunch, have a very informal uh, discussion, and there was a rule at the press club at that time that anything heard at the press club could not be used by a competing newspaper. So you had a chance of even though you were right next to a competing paper or a competing legislator you could discuss anything you want, and you knew
3: it stayed at the press club. Mm, so it became a place for the exchange of ideas. Exactly. Was there a coziness that makes you uncomfortable when you look back on it? I mean, because you had members who were judges, for instance, right, and, and politicians? It was, it was a way of developing uh, civil discourse uh, among the
4: different entities that ran Denver. And so I, I look upon it as a very positive thing.
3: You know, Denver also has a women's press club. It was founded in 1898. So after the the just plain press club, did the 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 plain press club allow women at first? At first, they didn't. Uh, we had a, a very
4: strong relationship with uh, a group called the Writers Club, uh, which was uh, composed of women from the different newspapers and magazines in Denver. Uh, it wasn't part of the. Uh, women's press club, but I think it um, became part of it later. But uh, ever since the early days when there was the men's group and there was the women's group, there was still a very healthy and active relationship between the two groups. And at what point did the press club allow women? Yeah, it was in the 19, early 1960s when club president Dusty Saunders, who many people remember as Column, a Columnist. Exactly. And,
3: and writer, yeah, for the Denver Post for many years.
4: Exactly. And... Uh, He was able to introduce the idea of having women members. It uh, wasn't comfortably received in the uh, beginning, but Dusty was persistent with it. And uh, we were able to get the bylaws
3: changed and uh, women became active members of the club. Do you have a favorite story in, in the history of the Denver Press Club? Is there one that you're just always excited to tell people? There are lots of
4: legends that, that have some uh, definite basis of uh, fact as we uh, move from press club to press club uh, location. Uh, there was a poker game that was going on. I believe it was at the St. James Hotel. And the moving van pulled up and ready to load uh, all the uh, furniture onto the truck. But the, uh, the, to to uh, the next,
3: location, to for the next this, location for this
4: itinerant press club. Right. But the uh, poker players didn't want to stop their game. I mean, how dare they? So they loaded the table, the chairs, and the uh, poker players onto the moving van, and the game continued to the next location.
3: Now, you aren't sure if this is myth or if this is true? Uh, It was reported in the newspaper as fact. Well, it must be true. So we'll go with that. (laughs) (laughs) And eventually, as you said, the Denver Press Club um, was able to find its own building. Right. And that is unusual, isn't it, in the country? Very unusual, and uh, we're
4: practically the only press club that I know of uh, in the country that has their own uh, exclusive building other than uh, National Press Club.
3: Membership is in the mid-300s today, which is down from a few years ago, when your website says nearly 500 people were members. Many of those members are not journalists. they are They are PR people, for instance. Is the club still relevant journalistically?
4: Yes, because uh, the club started, uh, I mean, even in the heyday in 1905, there were 187 members uh, when we had many, many uh, different newspapers and magazines uh, throughout the city. The concept of the Denver Press Club uh, was primarily as a place where people who had a healthy respect for civil, political, and social discourse And a respect for the Second Amendment could get together and discuss political issues, uh, issues that were of concern to the community. And
3: so that notion of the Denver Press Club as a gathering place for diverse voices from diverse fields, you see that mission continuing today and and perhaps why the membership reflects more than just pure reporters. Definitely. Uh, We've always
4: welcomed – Anybody, even outside the uh, the press corps.
3: I mean, hasn't it at times been a place to get a good beer and a lunch for just anyone as well?
4: Uh, it still serves that purpose to some degree, but, okay. it, but it was very popular in the 40s and 50s as a uh, cheap place to eat.
3: In that vein, do you think the club should stay a members-only
4: institution? I think so, personally. Uh, all of our activities are open to the public, so we do welcome... Uh, the general public to attend our programs. Uh, we have guest lecturers come in, uh, book beat, uh, authors coming on a, on their road tours. And we always welcome the uh, uh, general public to that. Wednesday nights are podcast uh, from the press club. We uh, have a lot of our programs broadcast on Channel 8. Uh, we do need to, to work on getting more people into the club. Do you have bloggers who are members? That I'm not sure. Uh, I
3: imagine there are some on Facebook and social media. This weekend, the Press Club's annual Damon Runyon Awards take place. Previous recipients include New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd, NBC's Tom Brokaw, Tim Russert, and NPR's Frank DeFord. Whom are you honoring this year? This year will be uh, Jill Abramson, who
4: is uh, the former uh, editor at the uh, New York Times. Right. And uh, she's going to be coming out with a book in the near future about challenges of uh, the media.
3: She became the paper's first female editor. That's right. In September of 2011. Past recipients also include George Will, Bob Costas, Tim Russert. What do you see the Press Club's role being in the next, I don't know, 10 years?
4: I think as people look forward to civil, political, and social discourse, I see the press club being a place where people can come for good discussions
3: of uh, current events that are going on throughout the country and throughout the world. And, and why, why uh, a bricks-and-mortar space to do that, given that so much of that is happening online? I, I think nothing beats face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact uh, with the
4: people, being able to sit down with these movers and shakers rather than you know, discuss it over you know, something as informal as a computer.
0: Alan, thanks for being with us. Pleasure. Alan Kanya is a historian of the Denver Press Club, which soon turns 150 years old. He spoke with Ryan Warner. And I'll note, at one point, Alan said the Press Club was for people with respect for the Second Amendment. He clarified after the interview he intended to say First Amendment, which protects a right to free speech. The annual Damon Runyon Award banquet named for an early member of the Press Club is tomorrow evening. For transparency's sake, I and a fellow Colorado Matters producer, Michelle Fulcher, are members. Still to come, interpreting the Dust Bowl of the 1930s through dance and song. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is what it sounds like to be in the middle of a dust storm as imagined by folk musician Jesse Manley. It's part of a new production about the Dust Bowl of the 1930s that explores themes like climate change and job loss that will sound very familiar to modern audiences. The show Dust debuts tonight from Denver's Wonderbound Ballet and Curious Theater Company. Garrett Ammon is Wonderbound's artistic director and president. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nathan. How do you bring the strife of the Dust Bowl to the stage and make it relevant today?
5: That's a great question. I think first of all is focusing on people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Curious Theater and Wonderbound are both really fond of telling stories and telling really personal stories. So we saw The Dust Bowl as an opportunity to kind of dive into uh, a microcosm of a small town and be able to explore uh, the the different dynamics going on during this period of time.
0: Now, of course, lots of people lost their livelihood in the Dust Bowl. Uh, that's also happened on the Eastern Plains in recent
3: years.
5: Yes, and I think that's uh, ultimately that's why we landed on this subject. For one, it is relevant to Colorado, um, but then it's also relevant to where we are today. There are so many things happening in our world, whether it be politically or, or with climate or social issues, that really parallel uh, this moment in time in in our history I want to understand how all the pieces of the show
0: fit together. I, I imagine there's dialogue, and then the characters break out and dance and song or uh,
5: yeah um <laughs> kind of on some level oh, i I, right. I think um but it's it's a really subtle um uh, uh, process. So D Covington from Curious Theatre wrote the script and so that's kind of the the basis of where we, we we began but at the same time Jesse Manley was writing all new music for this show uh, pulling from a lot of the same ideas and um, explorations and then, uh, then it was my responsibility to find how all of that um, merged together and allowed dance to come out of it. So we do literally go from having dialogue between characters that just naturally moves into movement so that we can explore more of uh, the internal um, psychological aspect of of what they're dealing with and then move back out of that into text again. The show takes place in a fictional
0: eastern plains town. What kind of characters are people going to see?
5: So they're going to see um, an immigrant farming family that just moved to the plains. Um, They purchased the land, expecting to show up to a beautiful place with water and, and, um, f- uh, land ready to be farmed. And obviously that's not what they discover. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have ranchers who are farmers and ranchers at the time were, um, uh, there's a great amount of tension between them. Um, we have a, um, a preacher and his wife who are struggling to help this community, um, um, survive through this period, and they're dealing with their own personal issues between them. And then we also have um, a, a couple of gentlemen who swoop into town and um, offer um, to make it rain, they're rainmakers, which was something that was actually common in, in, um, in the time period for. So, like um, con men, in a sense? Yes, essentially. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so what happens is you, you're really dealing with ideas around faith. You're dealing with ideas around um, hope and loss and, um, and very human um, issues that are magnified because of the environmental situation. So you're able to show how different people react in this really challenging time period of history. Is that a parallel to something that you see today? Yeah, I I think um, when you when you look at what's going on in regard to um, California and the farming industry there, they're direct parallels. There's uh, mistrust of government, which is something that was also uh, really prevalent at the time. The government was trying to do the right thing, but they were just learning along with everyone else. You have these realities that, um, as individuals, none of these individuals were. Wanting to do anything wrong, they weren't. Didn't have any ill intent, but um, the the result of all of these different actions um, had a huge impact on on, on the world and. Um, so you're dealing with guilt. You're dealing with um, fear. You're dealing with what a lot of people perceived as um, an apocalypse.
0: Right. And in a sense, you've got you know, conservation efforts were, were nil at the time, people digging up you know, the land and over and over and over again. And then the government saying there's a new way to do this and having this, this conflict yes. there. Yeah. To bring the Dust Bowl to life, you don't actually swirl dust around on the stage. People don't get dust in their eyes. Uh, you rely on the music. Um, and in, in this production, uh, there's an original recording, original scoring, actually, by Jesse Manley. A track called Mother Nature's Need is the theme for the show. I have heard
5: a spell you Everything live and will die Turn the soil and wet and sod And seed every fur.
0: Manley sings, I have heard the sparrow warn, everything living will die. Is there a, a dust-to-dust quality to this story? You know, that, that after the tragedies of the Dust Bowl, new life came out.
5: Yes, uh, and, and that does come through in the play as we journey with these characters. Um, they have to let go of some things that they... Um, that they were holding on to and move forward. And sometimes that means um, a, um, um, a daughter moving away with a new love. That might be um, um, a, a couple coming to terms with their own, um, with the mistakes that they've made in their relationships. So yeah, uh, there's, even though we, we leave these characters at the end of the play in a moment where they're still in the midst of the Dust Bowl, we've sat this um, story down, um essentially 81 years ago to the day um, yesterday was the um, anniversary of Black Sunday and we've talked a lot about Black Sunday being kind of a moment in time um, that this play kind of maybe sits around so uh, we, we kind of love the fact that we're opening it right in the midst of this but there's, there's still five more years of of the Dust Bowl yeah. before people escape it so we don't, uh, we don't leave you with a sense that oh everything's okay but we also so with a sense of that that these people are going to keep pushing forward, that they're going to keep finding their way.
0: Black Sunday. What, what is Black Sunday?
5: Black Sunday was one of the worst dust storms um, in, in, uh, during the Dust Bowl. And it, it covered essentially the entire country uh, from the Rocky Mountains all the way east. So um, it, it was hugely destructive.
0: On a huge scale, it seemed. You have dancers and actors in this cast from both Wonderbound and Curious Theater. What was the hardest thing for each of them to to learn about the other's
5: craft. They don't typically interact with each other. Right, yeah. There's a big uh, learning curve for everyone because um, we only worked on the show specifically for um, about four weeks. Hmm. So um, even though we had done some workshops throughout the past year and a half, this was an intensive reality where um, dancers were handed a script and they had to start learning lines and start doing lines with, with um, uh, experienced actors and experienced actors had to start dancing with uh, professional dancers on the spot. Right. And um, it's about finding a common language and figuring out how, um, how to engage each other uh, um, and and embrace each other, and that the beautiful thing was the fact that everyone really supported each other through that that um, they they um, freely gave of their knowledge and um, assisted each other through through the whole process
0: and you and the dust cast also dealt with some other challenges. Uh, a dancer who was supposed to be in this production left recently, uh, and, and before the season started, about half of wonderbound 's dancers left the company. Uh, You get public funding, $167,000 from a metro area cultural tax in 2014. Are these departures indicative of something happening at at Wonderbound? Uh, The public should be concerned about that?
5: Oh, no, not at all. Um, We had um, several dancers retire. Um, Many of them had been with us for many, many years. And uh, that's um, that's part of what happens from time to time. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think for us what happened was that they just happened to happen at once a lot of companies will have one or two dancers turn over um, over time uh, and we had multiple dancers move on to um, uh, new paths in their their lives at at the same time
0: so how did these departures affect this production Uh, did it change how you choreographed the show or or perhaps it was difficult to train uh, maybe the new dancers who came on in in both the ways of the company and, and in particular and also the acting skills they must learn
5: for dust um, no, I think, uh, the, the company that we have right now has been with us for the entire season. So we, um, they they've already been kind of integrated into that reality. I think the, the acting aspect of it is something that a lot of dancers, um, won't have done um, uh, to a great extent outside of Wonderbound. But within Wonderbound, we have, um, we've done many productions that have text within the show and so forth. And, and so we have several dancers that have um, definitely um, uh, uh, used that part of their, their capacity um, in the past.
0: Garrett, thanks for being here.
5: Thank you so much, Nathan.
0: Garrett Emmon is artistic director and president of Wonderbound. The company's new production with Curious Theater and folk musician Jesse Manley is called Dust. It opens tonight. From the Dust Bowl of the stage to the Dust Bowl of real life. The Eastern Plains were hit hard by the Great Depression, and the Dust Bowl droughts exacerbated that. Bob Coulson spent his early years on his family's homestead near Ereba. It's about 100 miles east of Denver. Colson's parents eventually lost their farm and left the town. But years later, Bob Colson moved back. He spoke to CPR's Ryan Warner at his home in 2009. I want to
3: start with the worst day, the day of the farm sale when
6: your parents lost their property. What do you remember of that? Most of the people who left this area, their only alternative was to go to Denver and try to find work. So If we were going to move to Denver, that means that I would have to give up my dog, Pal. And he was my friend, and so I hated to do that.
3: So it was the farm, it was the land, and it was everything in the farm. Everything.
6: The only cash flow we had was a a few dollars a week from the cream that we separated from the cow's milk and sent to Denver uh, to be made into butter, And we would receive a check for maybe $3.68 every week for that. And we would take our eggs, which we didn't get any cash for, but we would barter those eggs at the local grocery store. And they would give us $0.08 a dozen credit to buy flour and sugar and the things that we couldn't produce in our garden.
3: And Bob, in addition to the economic difficulty, there was
6: difficulty with the land. It was a constant effort to gain anything from the the land because of the drought. Uh, Several years, it was so dry that sometimes the, the wheat would not even sprout. Another reason was grasshoppers were very prevalent. They would fly and almost darken the sky at times. They were just so, well, they were hungry and they needed to eat, and here's a little bit of greenery, and and here they came, and they just they would just wipe out a crop in, 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 in days. One of the other things, that maybe not the same year, but either the next year or the following year, we had an overpopulation of jackrabbits. Now, we see these cute little cottontails running around. That's one breed, but a jackrabbit is a big animal. We don't see many anymore. They had very long ears and a black tail. And uh,
3: and here's another thing to compete for food with. That's
6: it. And and so the grasshoppers had their turn. Now it was the uh, rabbit that would devour the crops. So in order to uh, help curb that population, uh, many of the farmers would, uh, on a Sunday afternoon, they would get together and, and put a, a corner fencing up, sort of like chicken wire, uh, on two sides. And then gather around behind a uh, half mile away or so with uh, clubs like baseball bats or something, and they'd drive these animals, these jackrabbits, into this, uh, this corner. This isn't very nice to talk about, but when the jackrabbits tried to get away from being confined in this corner, they would try to dart out between the farmers, at which time they would just club them to death. Now, the reason for doing that was twofold. Uh to get rid of the rabbits, but the county participated by offering a bounty of two cents for a pair of rabbit ears. Now, their ears had to be cut off of the dead carcass, and they had to be attached, or they wouldn't get their two cents.
3: Was that an exciting thing to watch as a kid, or a horrifying thing to watch? I can
6: watch? remember that the women thought it was a terrible thing, but the men didn't have mercy on them, because that was they were taking their livelihood away from them.
3: Let me ask you about Uh, The the dust storms, the dust bowl, which I think more people are familiar
6: with. Do you remember them? Oh, absolutely. Back in those days, the farmers were not quite knowledgeable enough to rotate their crops or to leave the topsoil dormant for a year so as to soak in the moisture or to strip crop or to leave it fallowed one year so that the next year it would produce more. So every year my dad would get out of his disc and his team of horses and he'd go over the same land over and over again. And the wind would incessantly blow, especially in March, and that topsoil would just come across the land and it would be like the darkest cloud you ever saw. It got so dark on some days... We had chickens, and they thought it was night, so they'd go into the chicken house and get up on the roost and go to bed, in the middle of the in the middle of the day. Another time, the little school building right down the street, the wind would make the uh, glass in the in the schoolhouse sing a little tune, like it, it, they would just hum, because of the the window panes would rattle. But the dust was so bad and the wind was so bad that it caused each of the school buses, of which there were four, back in those days they had a distributor with points in them, the wind and the dust would cause those points to weld together. The buses wouldn't start. So each of the farm kids were doled out to residents of the town to spend the night. And I definitely remember uh, spending the night in a two-story home here in Araba, um, my sister slept in one room and I slept in another. And the next morning, this the it was calm as could be. The sun was bright and it was a beautiful day. Just the opposite from the day before. But you just couldn't get home. Couldn't get home. Yeah, no. I, I can't help but hear these stories, Bob, and think,
3: why the heck did you stay?
6: The thought never occurred to us because where would we go? What would we do? My father only had a fourth-grade education. Uh, my mother had an eighth-grade education. And we were sort of attached to the land. Where would we go? What would we do?
3: You eventually had to answer that question when you lost the farm. Abuse. Right.
6: Then it was mandatory to go someplace. And like many others, went to the big city in in Denver. And uh, my father... Uh, received a little over $700 from the farm sale and purchased a, a new 1937 Ford ton-and-a-half truck and had a coal bed put on the back and, and started soliciting customers from the neighborhood in which we lived. Back then, the the houses were heated with coal, and they would be able to buy a ton of coal for $3.75. That was great because, again, he had cash flow, our rent uh, at 1737 East 35th Avenue in Denver was $25 a month, and we had an indoor bathroom and a bathtub, and gee, things were pretty good.
3: Had you had indoor plumbing in Araba? No. No. I wonder if the Depression, living through all of those hard times, gives you some perspective later in life. In other words, does it redefine what hardship is, or what work is?
6: In looking back, I think the years right after the Depression were still not easy years. But I look back at those years as the, the most important years of my life because it taught me how to live by my wits and, and how to appreciate every dollar that, that came my way.
0: Bob Colson of Araba speaking to CPR's Ryan Warner in 2009. Up next, how the steps to the Mother Cabrini Shrine in Golden influenced a musical composition. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The rhythms in the music you're hearing were inspired by a trip to the Shrine of Mother Cabrini, located on a hilltop west of Golden, Colorado in Jefferson County. Composer Kathleen Fagri set out to write a musical tribute to Cabrini and found herself captivated by the rhythm of the steps that lead visitors to the Shrine. Gregory's piece is being performed twice this month by the Astor Women's Chamber Choir. She joins us now by phone from Alaska. Kathleen, welcome.
7: Welcome. Hello there, Nathan. How are you?
0: I'm well, thank you. So the Astor Choir of Broomfield asked you to write a piece for them in 2002 when you were living in Boulder. How did you settle on Mother Cabrini as the subject?
7: Uh, they actually commissioned me to write about Mother Cabrini. Um, Tina had um, discovered that there wasn't any music written for um, for Mother Cabrini, and so um, I was working with Astor at the time, uh, accompanying them on some gospel music stuff, and uh, and so she said, "Wow, I, you know, I wonder if we could ever find some music." And I said, "Well, I I'm, could probably write something for that," and that began the whole journey.
0: And Mother Cabrini has a pretty long biography. She founded orphanages and hospitals and worked in the U.S., Europe, and South America. How did you figure out what to focus on?
7: Yeah, I uh, went up and uh, I went to the shrine and I interviewed um, the administrator there at the time and and then I looked through all their. They have a lot of literature there, um, and I focused in on a book that um, called "To the Ends of the Earth" and it was all about her missionary travels, and it and and so within the book, it is just her writings about her travels, and she has all these different prayers, and she has all these different, all of her fears and all of her joys. And so I was caught up in, more in her life and in, um, in the struggles that she faced and everything, and then I found this one gorgeous prayer that she had written in there, and that's where I camped on
0: and let's talk about the, the the shrine the steps up there take visitors across the hillside there are trees along the path and sweeping views of the front range and and the shrine which is a statue of Jesus is is right at the top what do you remember about standing on the hillside that day while you were researching the piece
7: it's a vast openness Yet it, so you can overlook all of Denver and, you know, out to the plains and everything. And, um, but it's so peaceful up there. And, um, and so as I started to, to walk the steps up, because it is a, a little walk up to the top uh, where you can see the statue. The steps are actually kind of grouped in, in groupings of two. And then there's a platform and then groupings of um, eight. And there's a platform. and, and so. Um, And as I went up and down and up and down, just um, imagining what the song could become, then um, I I started to notice that there's really a rhythm to the steps there. Uh, So at the very beginning of the piece, which is right before the cut that you played, um, the the actual rhythm of the groupings is in there. And then it's again at the end of the piece uh, found in the accompaniment.
0: And you took the rhythm of the stairs. It's, it's, it's just a, an interesting a, a bit of, of, of information there. Up to the shrine and work them into the piece. I want to listen a little bit. This is from o Unico Umore by Kathleen Fagri. About that walk, captivated you. Was it really just the rhythm of the steps, or was it actually the ascension up to the top?
7: Uh, It was both, um, and I think with the mix of um, the message and the and the love and the heart that she had for the Sacred Heart of Jesus, which is what that statue is up at the top of the hill. I wanted it to be that mix of, um, of the dance, um, particularly in the, in the cut that you have right now, is really where the piece just opens up freely into this um, celebratory dance. Um, and, and that's what it feels like um, as you're getting closer and closer to the top up there.
0: The choir in this piece sings a mix of mother Cabrini's writings and texts from the Bible. How did you decide what the choir should sing
7: um, initially um, of course, the book is written in English, and so the the beautiful prayer is all in English, and it just wasn't ringing true. To what it her heart felt like, and then it dawned on me. Duh, you know she's Italian. So I went to the university and I spoke with a um, an Italian professor there, um, and she translated it. Graziana um, translated it back into Italian, and then taught me how to say the words. So so speech itself has rhythm and once it turned back into Italian then it was then it gave the whole flavor of the song of the oh unicoromore and Della mia anima and so all of a sudden it became the um, the sweet lullaby of a love song that it is through most of the middle part. Um, So most of it's in Italian, and then you get to the end of the piece, and it's in Latin, because um, in this book, even though it's written in English, all the scriptures are only quoted in Latin.
2: So uh, the
0: the lullaby part of, of the song, that was intentional then, that really was.
7: Yeah. Oh, very much so. Very much so, because it's supposed because it is this love poem that um, that she wrote, and and it has that that sense of peace, and it has the sense of being endearing and close to someone. And so I really wanted to um, reflect that. Plus, I had worked with a choir, and these women can sing so beautifully, and so um, they, they sing in unison, all in one voice, so beautifully, and yet they can, they can really handle super tight harmonies, and they can blast open, you know, from the ground up to the sky. And so I wanted to encompass all of their attributes into the song as well.
0: You're, you moved with your family to Alaska, where you join us now in 2009, <laughs> to take a job with an airline. Uh, have your surroundings in Alaska inspired you to write music like this still
7: you know it it does uh i don 't have a whole lot of time for it right now because because I do work full time in the um in the aviation business up here but uh but I am looking forward to the time that I can cut back on the on the aviation work and uh, just fly around for fun and uh, and because I live in the woods at this point and so um, that's where my heart is. Well, Kathleen,
0: thanks for joining us.
7: Okay, thank you.
0: The Astor Choir is performing your piece this month. Uh, It's O Unico Amore, composer Kathleen Fagri's tribute to Mother Cabrini on Saturday in Broomfield on April 22nd in Centennial. Details at CPRnews.org. Finally, a tiny detour from our program. Last fall, we learned about a project that tosses out the traditional music touring model in which music is a commodity and gets Colorado bands like the Flowbots out and about to build relationships within small communities. It's called Detour. The state's cultural agency, Colorado Creative Industries, heads the project. It recently announced headlining acts for a second installment, Denver folk rock band Chimney Choir, musician-animator Laura Goldhammer, and Davy B. Gravy's Tiny Cinema, a mobile theater that shows 8mm silent films with live music. One of the stops on the tour is Buena Vista. In Chafee County, the town's administrators, Brandy Ryder, sees an economic benefit to this locally and regionally.
3: The more you can bring people out in your community, the more people rally around the businesses, the more foot traffic that's in your downtown. So it brings something to the locals, but it also provides a, a regional um, value in terms of entertainment for folks in Leadville, Salida, and, and Fair So bringing everybody together is what I think this accomplishes.
0: Tiny detours on the road May 1st through the 7th. Here now, how did it come to this? From headlining act Chimney Choir. How did it come to this from Chimney Choir? And that's our show for this Friday. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend.